you have a copy of God's Word with you, I invite you to open up to the epistle of 1 John, where we will continue working our way through this book and seeing what the Lord has to teach us in this letter that John wrote to the church. Uh, We'll be in chapter 5, looking at verses 1 through 5 this evening. Uh, This evening, I'll begin reading in chapter 4, verse 20, to give us a little bit more context since uh, the first few verses of uh, chapter 5 really relate to what John has said previously. So, I'll begin in chapter 4, verse 20. Hear now God's holy and errant word. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Thus far, God's holy word, let's pray. Lord and our God, we thank you for this word which you have given to us, and we ask now that as we come to it, you would teach us. We pray, O Lord, that your word would not return void. We know that you have promised that it will not, so we ask that you would instruct us that this would be for our uh, edification in doctrine, that it would reprove us and correct us and instruct us so that we might be thoroughly equipped as your people. We pray that you would do this for our good and your glory, and we ask in Christ's name, amen. I wonder if any of you have ever been in a situation, perhaps a a gathering of some kind, and you ended up running into somebody that you didn't know. So you began to engage in small talk, and eventually... A question came up, so what do you do for work? That's a pretty common question. I'm sure most of us have encountered it. Kids, you might have encountered someone asking you, what grade are you in? Which is kind of the same question. Well, as you begin to answer this question, you might explain uh, what your career is. Maybe you are an officer in the military or a police officer. You could be a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher, carpenter, contractor, business owner, whatever. Whatever it is that you do for work. Or perhaps you're a retiree, in which case you can say that. All of these professions have different tasks that they perform. All of them have different skill sets that they require. There's different characteristics of people who work in them. And when you are engaged in small talk with these people and they ask you the question, you will answer, I do this. And when they say, oh, so what does that mean? You would begin to tell them about the characteristics, about the skills that it requires, about what it is exactly 
that you do. It's this kind of a, a natural thing that we do as we're engaging with conversation. It's the way that we explain part of who we are. But there's another aspect of our lives, another part of who we are, which also contains uh, or requires various characteristics and entails uh, various tasks. We as children of God have certain characteristics which we demonstrate because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We as children of God undertake various tasks because of the Holy Spirit which God has given to us. And that is what John talks about in these five verses which we will look at this evening. John tells us here in this text that the children of God demonstrate certain characteristics like faith, love, and obedience, and that they, through Christ, are victorious over the world. Children of God, Christians, believers, demonstrate characteristics like faith, love, and obedience, and through Christ, are victorious over the world. It's a lot that John has to say here in five short verses. I'd like to break it down for us in two different headings, which you can see in your bulletin. First, characteristics of God's children. There are certain characteristics which God's children demonstrate or possess. We'll see that in verses one through three. And then second, we see the victory of God's children. Victory over the world through Christ. And John explains that to us in verses four and five. Broken down very simple. But as we dive into God's word, I hope and trust that you will see riches here about what we are called to be as Christians and who we are in Christ by the power of his spirit. Let's look first then at the characteristics of God's children in verses one through three. I said that there are three characteristics and there are three which John goes over here. There are more characteristics, certainly, but John has been focusing on three things primarily throughout the entirety of this book as we've studied it. First, uh, faith. John has called us to test our faith for assurance. And so the first characteristic which John goes over here is, in fact, the faith of Christians. Look with me at verse 1 where John writes that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Well, John speaks here of everyone who believes, meaning that those who are, uh, believe in Christ or believe that Jesus is the Christ are all children of God. It is not as though someone could have faith in Christ, trust in Christ, and not actually be a member of the family of God. And John speaks here of believing or faith. And you know that this faith, which John has been speaking of over and over again uh, in this book, is not mere intellectual assent. It isn't just knowing facts about Christ. It isn't just saying, well, I know that in the Gospels, it says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And I know that it says that he performed miracles. 
And I know it says that he died on the cross. All those things are true and we must believe all of those things, but it isn't just that. What else is faith? The biblical definition of of faith is, is to know these things, but to believe them, to receive them to yourself, to, to embrace them as true for yourself and to rest upon Christ, to trust in that one whom all these things are about. Not merely to say, I know all of these things on my Jesus flashcard, but to say, no, I know Jesus and I trust in Jesus. It's to rest upon the object of faith, Christ himself. John says that we are to be people who believe. He says that those who believe Jesus is the Christ have been born of God. Why does he say this? You know that as we've been studying through this, John has said we're supposed to believe certain things. We're supposed to believe that Christ has come in the flesh, meaning we are supposed to believe that this really is God who became man. And we are to believe that Christ is the son of God that he is the second person of the Trinity, that he is God himself. John here says that we are to believe that he is the Christ. Why does John say this? What does he mean by this? Well, as is the case with these, these other things, this is shorthand for believing the entirety of the gospel, surely. But John here is emphasizing that we are to believe everything which God has said about his Messiah. See, the word Christ is the Greek word for the anointed one, just as the Hebrew word Messiah is the word for anointed one. This is the one whom God talked about all throughout the Old Testament. When God promised Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, he was talking about his anointed one. When Moses prophesied that there would be a greater prophet than he who would become, who would come, this was God promising his Messiah, the great prophet. When God promised David that his heir would sit upon his throne forever, God was talking about his Messiah. When God said that there would be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, he was talking about his Messiah the one who would be born of a virgin, Emmanuel, God with us, who would be pierced for our transgressions, who would have our iniquities laid upon him, whose body would not see corruption, who would be given all authority in heaven and on earth, the king set on Zion's holy hill, the anointed of God. We are to believe all of these things. We are to say, yes, This is Jesus the Christ. He is all of these things. He is the crusher of the serpent. He is the savior of the church. He is the prophet, priest, and king. And not only that he is these things, but he is the savior of me. He is my prophet, priest, and king. He is the one who has called me to himself. John reminds us of these beautiful truths by telling us that if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is in fact 
the anointed one of God who saves all of his people from their sins, as God prophesied, then we are born of God. This is a beautiful evidence that we are the children of the living God. Through his Holy Spirit who has revealed all of these things to us, God has brought us into his family. Dear Christian, do you believe these things about Christ? Is he your prophet, priest, and king? Is he your savior? Do you trust in him? Be encouraged. John reminds us that if you believe these things, if you believe the gospel, if you trust in Christ, you're one who has been born of God. You're one of God's children, demonstrated by this characteristic, this faith, which has been given to you by God's grace. And if John had stopped there, speaking of the characteristics of God's children, I think we would have had more than enough to review this evening and to to go over and to just bask in the glory of all that Christ is and all that he's done. But John doesn't stop there. He reminds us in the second half of verse one and verse two that God's children love. Even as he's been talking throughout the entirety of of verse or chapter four about the love of the people of God, he reminds us once more, we are people who love. Second half of verse one, John writes, everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. And by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. John reminds us that everyone who loves God the Father must, of necessity, also love those who are born of him. Uh, It's a little aside, but one of these interesting things that pops up when you read the Greek, the, the Greek word for father actually isn't used here. It's the one who begat. Now, it means the same thing, essentially, but if you love the one who begat you, then you love those who are begotten of him. John speaks here of this uh, natural relation which happens. If you love your father, you love your brothers and sisters. It just is the way things are. You can't love God and hate your brother. As John said previously, we just read in chapter 4, verse 20. The one who has so graciously and mercifully made you alive in Christ by his spirit, who who loves you and demonstrated his love to you, has, has caused you to be born again, deserves all of your love. And when you love him, you love all of those other ones who he loves. That's what John says. And it's just a marvelous truth. Now, again, we remember that the biblical definition of love is not necessarily just warm, fuzzy feelings, right? There is certainly uh, the emotional or the affectional aspect of love. You can't love God and, and not have your affections stirred up by thoughts of him, by by thinking of him and and dwelling on him. As you do so, as you think more and more of God and and who he is and who you were in relation to him, but who you are in relation to him now, your heart begins to swell and 
your affections are stirred up and you do love God with your emotions, but love is also something else. It's an action. And John talks about that with our love for one another and our love for God. Loving God and loving our brothers and sisters is not just uh, emotion or uh, uh, affections, excuse me, but it is also action. He says in verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now, if I asked you, what would be the best way to love somebody in this congregation? Say somebody had just had a surgery and we wanted to love on them. What's the best way to do that? Some of you might say, well, take the meals. We should take the meals. We should provide for them. Some of you might say, well, we should write them kind notes. We should visit them. We should pray for them. And these are all excellent things. And we should, in fact, do these. But what does John say is the way of loving one another? I don't think it's something that would immediately come to our minds. But he says, we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God and obeying him is one of the chief ways that we love one another. How is that? How does that work? How does that follow? I think maybe a way to think of this, an illustration which might be helpful here, is if you buy your children a Lego set, or children, if you've gotten a Lego set, and you want to show your younger brother or sister, or parents, if you want to show your child, how to build this particular Lego set, do you sit down and you look at the picture on the box and take all the pieces and try and work out how to build that set? No. What do you do? You open up the instruction manual, don't you? And you say, okay, we're going to take this long piece and we're going to put the little square here at the end of the long piece. And we'll, we'll put this other long piece across this way. And you slowly build it as you follow the instructions. We as Christians, when we are following God's instructions, when we're obeying him, when we're following the law, we're showing our brothers and sisters by example how to love God and obey him. And this is a way of loving them. Now, beyond that, we know that the second half of the law, the second table, as it's called, is summarized by the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we love our brothers and sisters by obeying that when we don't uh, murder or commit adultery or steal or bear false witness or covet. And when we do those other things which are uh, required as the opposite of those commandments. We're commanded, do not murder. And that doesn't mean just sit on your hands and don't kill people although that is certainly entailed in that commandment. But it also means that we are to seek the good of others, that we're to preserve our lives and the lives of others. The commandment not to seal doesn't mean just don't take people's things, but it also means to work and to produce and to have things to provide for yourself and others and to give out of your abundance so you can bless other people. And that is part of loving the people of God as well. Obeying God's law is an act of love 
towards God because we can only truly obey God's law when we love him. But it's an act of love towards our brothers and sisters. Next time you think, how can I love this saint? Think, how is my obedience to God loving towards them? And seek to love them in that way. Seek to love them in other ways, certainly. But remember, loving God and and obeying him is a great blessing to the church and an act of love towards one another. This is the second characteristic of the people of God, love. And the third is obedience. And as John has pointed out, Love and obedience really go hand in hand. They can't be separated. True obedience to God must come from love to God. If you're just obeying for the sake of obeying and not obeying because you love God and want to do what he says because he's your heavenly father and and your Lord and you just delight in doing his will and, and you want to please him, then you're just if you're not, that's not your motivation. You're just going through the motions. And is that true obedience? No, it's just doing things for the sake of doing them. And the same thing, if you say, well, I love God. Oh, he's, he's God. He's the greatest. Oh, my heart is stirred up. And then you never do what he tells you to do. Is that true love? It can't be. Husbands, if you come home from work and your wife asks you to take out the trash and you say, nope, don't really feel like it, you do it. Are you loving your wife in that moment? Even if you say, I love you. Or wives, if your husband comes home and he's tired and worn out from work and he wants to tell you about his day and you just say, no, I just want some money so I can go buy this at the store. Are you loving him? No. When you love someone, you don't just feel an affection for them, but you also seek to serve them and help them and be there with them, doing things which make them happy. And the same is true with the Lord. If we love God, we do what he says. It would just, it's utterly bizarre to claim to love someone, to love God and just not care at all what God wants us to do, what God desires for us, what God delights in. Utterly bizarre. Verse three, John says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Love for God makes the commands of God a delight. That does not mean, dear Christian, that you will be perfectly successful in obeying God all of the time and if you fail once, you don't love God. We unfortunately have not yet been glorified. There is still that remnant of sin which clings to us. And so, we do fail. Praise the Lord that by his Holy Spirit, 
he directs our sight back to Christ and says, turn away from sin and go to Christ. What this does mean, however, is that when you love God and when you delight in him, you realize that he did not give his law because he's some tyrant who makes up rules simply to make people suffer and live in hardship. When John says that his commandments are not burdensome, he he means that they're not heavy. They're not harsh. It isn't like you've picked up a boulder and you have to walk under its weight over and over and over again all day, every day. What it means is God has given you instructions in how he wants you to live, to guide and direct you on your path to the celestial city, to guard you from harm as rails along the side of a cliff. God's commandments are not burdensome, weighty, because they're holy, because the holy God has given them, but not harsh. When we understand the love of God and when we love God, we see this truth. God has given his law to us out of love. And in love, we desire to obey him, to please him, to delight him. Because he has done so much for us and we want to respond in love. These are characteristics of God's children. Faith, love, and obedience are these characteristics of your life. Are you trusting in Christ right now? Don't care if you trusted in Christ when you were five years old. You prayed a prayer and you say, well, I'm good now. No, are you trusting in Christ now? That is what matters. Dear people, believe what God has said about his Christ, his Messiah, and go to that Messiah, the Lord Jesus, for salvation. Take hold of him by faith and hold on to him, knowing that if you have come to him in faith by the Spirit, he holds on to you far more than you hold on to him. And love him. Meditate on the great grace and love of God and and the love of Christ to you and all the great things which he's done for you and for your brothers and sisters and let that stir your heart up to holy affections and then serve the Lord with gladness, obeying him to love your brothers and sisters and to show your love of God. These are what we need to do as Christian people. These are the characteristics. This is true of you. Praise the Lord for his great grace in your life. If it's not true of you, go to Christ. Go to Christ. Because it is in Christ that we have victory over the world. And that's John's second thing which he wants us to see in the text tonight. Verses 4 and 5, God's children have these characteristics, but God's children have victory over the world through Christ, their Savior. Look at verse 4. John writes there, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. What a statement. What a marvelous thing to say. 
all who are born of God, that is everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, everyone who trusts in him by faith has been grafted into Christ by the Holy Spirit, they are overcoming the world. It is an active verb which John uses here. The way it's translated in, in our English Bibles uh, actually is good because it communicates two things to us, which I think are important for us to know, but technically in the Greek it's active. We are overcoming the world. Not we might overcome the world or, or that we should overcome the world or that we can overcome the world, but we are right now overcoming the world. It's not yet complete, but it is a definite predetermined outcome. Christians will overcome the world because they are overcoming the world. Why? Because Christ has overcome the world. Jesus said in John 16 to take heart, I have overcome the world. And you know what? While our overcoming is active right now, when Christ said he has overcome the world, that was perfect. Perfect tense. It's done. Christ has overcome the Lord Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When we are in Christ, our victory over the world is sure and certain because his victory over the world is accomplished. Now, sometimes it might not feel like you are overcoming the world times when you struggle with sin in your life. There's times when you look out on the world and you see the great darkness which is out there and you think, how can we possibly be overcoming the world? It's, it's already done, dear saint. Do not let the darkness cause you to despair. Don't look at this world and think we're being beaten back. We aren't. There might be some ebbs and flows in the church but ultimately Christ has the victory and he gives the victory to his people. Not because we deserve it but because he's great and gracious and greatly to be praised because he has crushed the serpent. And as Matt preached last week, Satan is being crushed under our feet. The church as Christ, who is victorious, gives victory to his people. The people of God are victorious. This is the reality of the victory of the people of God. And how are we victorious? What is, what is the nature of this victory? John says in the second half of verse four, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The victory is our faith. We don't have to go conquer through swords or guns. No, faith is the weapon of our warfare. By faith, we overcome the world. This is amazing. This is counterintuitive. We would think, well, we need to go out there and establish uh, a kingdom. We have to go out there and, and, and fight physically because there's so much evil in this world. The world is conquered 
by the faith of God's people. Yes, we in faith live lives unto God. We in faith seek to elect godly officials and we seek to uh, erect godly institutions and things like that. But it isn't our work there which conquers. It's the gospel of Christ. Christ said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Proclaim Christ to people everywhere. How is it that people are saved? It isn't through the sword, but it is through faith in Christ. And this is what conquers the world. And it will be victorious. All of the nations will stream to Zion. And the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is the promise of God. When? We don't know. Christ returns, all things will be made new. We will see all of the fruits that God has produced. But know that right now, faith is the victory, the weapon of victory. The gospel of Christ goes forth into the earth and by it, men and women and children are converted to Christ. And the kingdom grows and grows like a mustard seed, which becomes a great plant. This is the nature of the victory. John also here talks about the exclusivity of the victory or of the victorious. Look at verse 5 quickly. John writes, who is it that has overcome the world or who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Who is it that overcomes if not those born of God? This is a rhetorical question that John is asking here. The various obvious answer is no one. No one except those who are born of God overcomes the world. No one who is outside of Christ can overcome the world they're still bound in chains. Those outside of Christ are are still enslaved to their flesh, uh, still enslaved to uh, the devil. They are his subjects. It is only those who are in Christ who overcome the world. Those outside of him cannot and do not want to fight against the world because they love the world and the things of the world. That's their delight and their hope. Who is it that overcomes the world? It is those whose delight and hope is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. Those who overcome the world are those who are clothed in the robes of the victorious King. Victors wear victors' crowns. Victors wear victors' robes. We have the robes of Christ given to us. We have the crown given to us, which we will then cast at Christ's feet. We are victorious, not because of our work, not because of our deeds. We are victorious because of Christ. It is a real 
and true victory given only to the people of God. Do you feel like a victor? You might not. You might not have really even considered it. It's an easy thing to just say, okay, well, I'm serving God, doing my best. And not to think about the fact that Christ has overcome the world and in Christ we are overcoming the world. It's an easy thing to overlook. What a thing to miss, though. If you overlook this, you overlook such a great and gracious promise of God. If you overlook this, it's very easy to lose sight of the great hope which we have that Christ is king and victorious. Not just in the future, but right now, Christ is king and victorious. People of God, be a hopeful, joyful people. Remember this great truth. Christ has overcome the world by his grace. You who are united to him by faith are overcoming the world. Remember this. And then seek by the power of his spirit to be overcomers. When you fail, return to the victorious king. Don't lay there in the mud letting your armor and weapons get rusty. Get up. Go to him that he may cleanse you. Go back to the fight. The Moravian church has a a logo. It's the banner of a lamb carrying a, a banner. And their slogan is, the lamb has conquered. Let us follow him. Dear people, the lamb has conquered. Christ has conquered. Let us follow him. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we praise you. You are greatly to be praised. Lord, we thank you for, by your Holy Spirit, working in us to give us faith. Lord, we could not have come up with faith on our own. Even the faith which you have given to us, which we place in Christ, is so often weak. Give us stronger faith, Lord. We thank you that you give us love for you who have begotten us, but also love for the brethren. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us by your spirit so that we would love you and do what you say and be loving towards our brothers and sisters. Lord, we desire to obey you. We know that your law is good. Lord, help us. We are weak. Help us, Lord. You are strong. We thank you for this great truth that you are giving us the victory. That because of Christ who has overcome the world, we are a victorious people. Oh Lord, give us great hope in Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has all authority in heaven and on earth and help us to follow him all the days of our life. We ask in his name, amen. Let's take a few moments now to meditate on the word which we have just read and and seen the great truths of. Let us
think of Christ who has overcome the world, the great prophet, priest, and king who is victorious over all things. Just rejoice in him, delight in him, and praise him. He is worthy of all praise. Let's do that as we meditate on the word now for a few moments.